0: So God has given us four Gospels, four descriptions of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I hope you spend time reading the Gospels, learning about your Savior, beholding Jesus, coming to know Him. They are powerful. And as you study the Gospels, you'll see that they each have their different emphases, but that they all have massive things in common, and one of them is that they all build slowly towards the climax of Jesus' death and resurrection, gradually building to that final section of each of the Gospels where we see Jesus on the cross and then see him emerging from the tomb. And not only that, but all the Gospels emphasize that Jesus knew ahead of time everything that was going to happen to him. As he went to Jerusalem and faced the cross, he knew what was going to happen to him and he chose to experience what was going to happen to him. He chose to experience. So, what that means is he was not a victim of circumstances beyond his control, not at all. He was in control. And that is going to help us see even more of Jesus' love for us in the fact that he went to the cross and died for us. That's what we're going to see this afternoon in Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 13. We're working our way through the gospel of Luke. I think we started this Christmas, two Christmases ago. We've taken some breaks and other things in the in-between in time. But in Luke 22:1 1 through 13, this afternoon, this passage divides into two sections. I want to look at each of them and then ask the question, why are they put together here by Luke? The first section shows that Jesus is going to be facing a growing crisis. There's a growing crisis. Let's ask this question, what crisis is growing? Start with verse 1, Luke 22, verse 1, now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. I just review, most of you know the Passover was a yearly celebration which each family amongst the people of Israel would put on, and it celebrates what happened 1,500 years before Jesus came. Because 1,500 years before Jesus came, God's people, the people of Israel, were slaves under Pharaoh's oppression in Egypt. But God's people cried out to the Lord, and you know the story. God answered by bringing plagues upon Egypt, horrifying plagues. And the final one was the worst of all, and that is that God's anger came over Egypt and it took the life of every firstborn in every household, except for those households who had taken a spotless, unblemished lamb, killed it, and applied the blood of the lamb to the doorposts of their house. Those homes, God's wrath passed over. The firstborn was not taken, was not killed. That's why it's called Passover. But all the other homes had the firstborn taken and that was so heartbreaking and so devastating that Pharaoh relented and let Israel go. And ever since that point, every year, God's people celebrated the Passover, which is also called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But the Passover, of course, as you know, is not just about Israel being freed from slavery. It also pointed ahead to what the Messiah would do on the cross because when Jesus died on the cross, he was paying for the sins. He was experiencing the wrath of God against all the sins of everyone who would put their trust in him. And so because your trust is in Jesus, God's wrath will always pass over you because all of his wrath against your sin was already poured out upon Jesus. Jesus paid it all, as we sing. All to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washes us white as snow. That's what Jesus did for us. And so Luke is setting the stage to tell us about this crisis by describing the fact that the Passover is coming near. It's getting close. And then look at verse 2. Here's the crisis starting to develop. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him, Jesus, to death. For they feared the people. Chief priests and scribes, they were the Jewish religious leaders. Had a lot of power. And all through the Gospels, we see that their hostility against Jesus is growing. And the reason they were so hostile toward Jesus was because he he called out their hypocrisy. He called out the fact that they were just interested in power and in money. He called out the fact that even though they had all these religious rituals they were involved in, they didn't know God. They talked like they cared about God, but they did not. They cared more about power and about money. And Jesus is calling them out publicly, and they are afraid that the crowds are going to turn against them, which would cost them their power and their money. So they were afraid that that's what Jesus would do, and so they wanted to kill him. This is a crisis because they had great power as the religious leaders. Now the crisis gets worse in verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. Satan, also called the devil, very powerful, wicked, evil, malevolent, spiritual being, far more powerful than any human being is in themselves, far less powerful than Jesus Christ is. Remember, Jesus cast demons out of people. Satan tried to oppress people with demons. Jesus cast those demons out. So Jesus is far more powerful. Satan thinks that by having Jesus killed, he's going to destroy, ruin Jesus' mission. But here we see the crisis getting worse because the devil, Satan, enters into Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, one of Jesus' 12 closest associates. Now think about this. This is shocking. Judas had been with Jesus for three years. He saw Jesus touch this unclean leper, and immediately the leper's skin was completely restored. Judas saw that. Judas saw Jesus say, Lazarus, come forth. And dead Lazarus came forth out of the tomb. Judas was there when Jesus met this man living naked amongst the tomb, screaming, cutting himself. And Jesus freed this man from a legion of demons with a word. And Judas had heard Jesus for hours giving his life-giving teaching. So Judas had experienced all of this, but he had never trusted Jesus as his Savior, as his Lord, as his treasure. He trusted money as his Savior, his Lord, his treasure. We know that because, for example, he stole money regularly out of their common fund that they had together. Judas was not saved. He was not trusting Christ. That's why Satan was able to enter into him. And let me just mention, this is so important, but no one here who's trusting Jesus Christ should ever be afraid that Satan is somehow going to enter into you. Like we saying, Jesus will hold you fast. He will never let that happen. So none of you who are trusting Christ need to be the slightest bit of afraid that this is going to happen to you. But it did happen to Judas because Judas was not trusting Jesus. Satan entered into Judas. He didn't make Judas do anything Judas didn't already want to do. He simply encouraged it even more. So can you feel now the crisis is getting worse? One of Jesus' 12 closest associates is being influenced by Satan. And what does Judas do? Verse, six, verse 4, he went away, Judas went away, and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray Jesus to them. See, the Jewish leaders had a problem. Up to this point, the people loved Jesus' miracles. They loved his healings. They were very excited about Jesus, And so the religious leaders knew that if they tried to arrest him in public with the crowds around, a riot could start. They could be in big trouble. So they needed to find a way to arrest Jesus when he was all alone in private, away from the crowds. And Judas was the answer to their problems. He knew, Judas knew where Jesus went to be in private with just his closest associates, his disciples. And Judas told the religious leaders, I will sell you that information For money. Verse 5, they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him, Jesus, to them in the absence of a crowd. So here's verses 1 through 6. A growing crisis. Can you feel it? Religious leaders want to kill Jesus. Judas, one of Jesus' twelve closest associates, for money, promises he will betray him to them. This is all a growing crisis developing here. Now, at this point, at the end of verse 6, I think Luke knows that we, his readers, could have the wrong impression. We could think, yikes, Jesus is about to fall into a circumstance. He's going to be the victim of circumstances that are beyond his control. Jesus has no idea what's going to happen. This is terrible. That's not the case. Not at all. And to show us that, in this next section, Luke teaches us a crucial truth about Jesus. So let's ask, what does the next section teach us about Jesus? It's an amazing few verses here. Start with verse 7. Look at what happens next. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I meet the Passover with my disciples? And he, the master of the house, will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. So what is Luke teaching us about Jesus here? Here. He's emphasizing that Jesus is in complete control and that he knows exactly where Peter and John are going to find a room for them to celebrate the Passover in. Now, Did you you catch that? It's kind of amazing what Jesus says here. Jesus knows that when Peter and John enter the city, a man carrying a water jar is going to meet them. He knows that ahead of time. They're to follow this man to a house that Jesus knows this man's going to enter. Then Jesus tells them that when he enters, they're supposed to follow him inside, and Jesus knows that the master of the house is going to be right there, and so they're to talk to the master of the house and say, where is the guest room where Jesus may eat the Passover with his disciples, and Jesus knows that the master is going to show them this large, upstairs, furnished room where they can prepare for the Passover meal. So Luke is emphasizing Jesus is in complete control. He knows exactly where they're going to be celebrating the Passover meal. But here's the question. How did Jesus know all that? How did he know that? How is he able to control all of that? Now, we might think that Jesus was this master human planner. okay? just had it all planned out. like He told a man... I want you to carry a water jar and be here, right? We're going to time this right when Peter and John walk in. I want you to meet them right when they walk in the gate of Jerusalem. And Jesus had already told this man, then you go to a house, and I've already got it all set up. There's going to be a master of the house there. He's got an upper room for us. You go in. Peter and John will follow you, and then they will talk to the master. And Jesus has already talked to the master of the house who has the upper room all prepared and ready, and he's already ready to say yes. We could think this was all just human planning, but I don't think that's what's going on here. I think this is a supernatural miracle. I think Luke is describing a miracle here, that Jesus as God is is working. Two reasons I think that. One of them, Luke emphasizes that this all happened just as Jesus said. Read verse 13 again. Look at what he emphasizes here. And they, Peter and John, went and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover." I think that's Luke's way of saying, reader, this was a supernatural miracle. This is not just human planning. If this had been human planning, if Jesus had simply organized it all, communicated it to everybody, then of course it would have happened the way he said. It was all humanly planned out. Nothing unusual about it happening that way at all, but the fact that Luke highlights, this is unusual, it happened exactly as he said, shows that this was supernatural a supernatural miracle. Otherwise, it wouldn't have even needed to have been mentioned that it all happened just as he told them. So it sounds like Luke is alerting his readers. This wasn't just Jesus' human planning. This was a supernatural miracle that took place here. Second reason. At other times, Jesus miraculously knows and controls the future. We see it through the Gospels. Remember when Jesus was going to be entering Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and he needed a donkey to carry him in, and he told the disciples exactly where they were going to find the donkey? Remember that story? There's an even more dramatic one in Matthew chapter 17. Remember this one? Tax collectors had talked to Peter and asked him, why doesn't Jesus pay the temple tax? And so Peter comes and asks Jesus, why don't you pay the temple tax? And I love Jesus' answer. He says, the temple is my father's house. Sons don't need to pay taxes to their father for living in the house. Okay? He, but Jesus said, but we don't want to offend anybody, so we're going to pay the tax. And then he tells Peter where to get the money. Remember the story? He tells Peter where to get the money. Where does Peter get the money? Matthew 17, 27. Look at what happens. Jesus says, however not to give offense to them. Go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel, a coin. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Jesus tells Peter to go fishing. And then when Peter catches his first fish, he should open that fish's mouth and there's going to be a coin there which is just what they needed to pay for both of their temple tax. And that's exactly what happened. But obviously, this could not have happened by human planning, right? That's that's not going to happen. This is clearly a supernatural miracle. Somehow, Jesus had this fish. Maybe somebody had dropped the the shekel coin in the the Sea of Galilee, and the fish is going to go down and, and maybe take it up in its mouth and then bite the hook and then catch it, and boom, there it is. Cha-ching, paid the temple tax. Maybe that's how it worked, but the point is this was not human planning. This is a supernatural miracle. That's what Jesus does. He knows and controls the future. There's times where as God, he, He knows and controls the future. We see that right here, and I think that's what's also happening in Luke 22, verses 7 through 13. This is not human planning. This is a supernatural miracle of Jesus' sovereignty. Jesus, as God, sovereignly planned that a man carrying a water jar would meet Peter and John right when they walked in the gate, because Jesus is working as God. He's God. He sovereignly planned for this man then to walk to a house where there was a upper room available for the Passover, and he sovereignly planned for the master of that house to be willing to let Jesus and his disciples use that room. And because Jesus sovereignly planned it, it happened just as he said. That's what Luke wants to teach us from this second section, verses 7 through 13. He wants to show us Jesus' sovereign authority. There are times when he knows and controls everything that happens. Now, next question I want to raise. Why would Luke put these two events together? When the biblical writers write history, oftentimes they'll put events together, not just because of chronology, one happened first and one happened next, but because by putting those two events together, there's going to be a truth taught to us. I think that's what Luke is doing here. Here's a picture of the passage. First of all, verses 1 through 6, as I said, we see a growing crisis in verses 1 through 6. A growing crisis is happening there. The religious leaders want to kill Jesus. Satan enters into Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Judas agrees to betray Jesus away from the crowds. We could think at this point, like I said, that Jesus is facing a crisis. He doesn't know this is coming. What's going to happen to Jesus? But then in verses 7 through 13, we see Jesus' sovereign authority. He knows exactly how Peter and John are going to find the location for the Passover. He's planned it all out by a supernatural miracle. And I think Luke put these two events together to teach us a crucial truth. Grace Church, we need to hear this truth tonight. We need to learn this truth. We need to see this truth. This is going to show us more of Jesus' love for us in going to the cross. Here's the truth. Just as Jesus as God knew how Peter and John would find the Passover room, so, Jesus as God knew what Judas and the religious leaders were planning. As the events of the crucifixion unfold in, in every gospel, and right here we see it in Luke, Luke wants to make sure that we understand that Jesus is completely aware of what's going to be happening. He knows and, in many ways, controls what's going to be taking place here throughout Luke's gospel. And it's not just Luke's gospel that this is emphasized throughout the gospels. Let me give you a couple of other passages. I want to just make sure that this truth is just deeply impacting us tonight. Jesus' sovereign authority, knowing and controlling as he's moving ahead toward the cross. I want us to see this tonight. So let me give you some other scriptures just to back this up. First of all, Luke 22, a few verses later, verse 21. Look at what Jesus says. He's there at the upper room now. Right? That upper room that they went to. Celebrating the Passover with his disciples. And imagine that you were Judas hearing Jesus say these words. Verse 21. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Whoa. Jesus knew exactly what was happening. He knew. He knew. And how did Jesus know this? Next verse, verse 22. He says, For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. The Son of Man goes. I'm going to be arrested just as it has already been determined. Now, how was it determined? Who determined it? In Acts 4, in other passages, we see that before creation, God, God the Father, with God the Son, Jesus, with God the Holy Spirit, planned out the events of the crucifixion and the resurrection together. Planned, determined it. And so Jesus, as God, knew that Judas was going to betray him. It had been determined. Another example. Remember when Jesus is betrayed by Judas? Remember when Peter pulls out his sword? Peter's going to... You you love Peter, don't you? You love him. He's going to defend his Savior. But look at what Jesus says to him in Matthew 26, verse 53. Jesus says, Peter, do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? A Roman legion is 6,000 soldiers. So I got my calculator, so 12 times 6, that's 72,000 angels, right? Did you catch that? So Peter, put the sword away, Peter. I could call upon the Father, and just like that, 72,000 angels would be here to deliver me. Do you feel the power of that? Jesus is completely in control. Why hasn't he called for the angels yet? He's going to the cross. That's why. He's going to the cross. See, what's amazing about this verse, think about this, at any point, Jesus could have stopped the suffering. At any point. See, he was never a victim of circumstances beyond his control. He was always in control. At any point, he could have stopped any of his sufferings, which means he consciously chose all his sufferings. Do you see that? He chose the beating. Didn't call for the Father. He chose the scourging, that horrible Roman whip. He chose that. He chose the nails He chose the hours of horrifying agony on the cross. He chose, he chose, he chose to pay the debt of punishment that we deserve for our sins. He chose at every moment. He could have stopped any of his suffering, which means he chose all of his suffering. He chose One last example, John 10, 17 through 18. Are are you seeing the point here? Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen. Jesus is controlling what's happening. He is going to the cross, choosing it all. And look at Romans 10, 17 and 18. He says, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. See, no one took Jesus' life from him. Jesus gave his life for us. You see that? No one took Jesus' life from him. He gave it for us. That's the point here. Jesus had authority to lay his life down in death, which he did. And then he had authority to raise his life up again, resurrection, which he did. He was in complete control of everything that happened all the way to the cross and the resurrection now why is this so important to understand lots and lots of reasons file it away think about it some more but let me just highlight one reason that I think the Lord especially wants to impress upon us Grace Church this afternoon it's because this helps us to see the wonder of his love that's why helps us see the wonder of his love The more we see His love, the more we will trust Him, the more we will speak of Him, the more we will obey Him, follow Him, worship Him, delight in Him. That all comes from the more we see of His love. So let's think about his love here. Think about this. All of us, every single one of us in this room has rebelled against God knowingly, willingly, sinfully. We've we've all deserved to be punished for our sins forever. That's That's the context for Jesus' love for us. We deserved eternal punishment, but in great love, Jesus was punished for all the sins of everyone who will trust him. He cared about us that much. We were his enemies. He loved us and gave himself up for us. And I want you to feel tonight how great that love was. It was great love because he knew ahead of time everything he would face in Jerusalem. The betrayal, the arrest, the beating, crown of thorns, the scourging, the Roman whip, the nails, the cross, and his love for us, his love for you. Sent him to Jerusalem knowing everything that he was going to face. This is your Jesus. His love for you sent him knowing exactly what he was facing. He went. That's great love. That's the greatest love. We also can see how great his love is because at any moment he could have been delivered. At any moment, he could have called it off. Think about it. Could have been delivered from another lash of the whip. Father over damned all of us. Feel the power of that? Father. And he just continued. He loved us. He gave himself up for us. He could have kept himself from another lash of the whip, from another, the next nail, from another minute on the cross. But he chose, he chose, he chose, he chose until your debt, the debt of punishment that you owe, until your debt was fully paid. And at the end, he could cry out, it is finished! (laughs) Because it was finished. That's great love, friends. That's the greatest love. That's your Savior. That's your Jesus. Oh, see His love in a fresh way this afternoon. Let this just like put the camera lens in a little bit sharper focus or let it become more wide-angled or whatever it might be, but see more of his love for you tonight. See it. See it. He knew everything you would face in Jerusalem and his love for you moved him to go. At any moment, he could have been delivered, but his love for you moved him to continue until it was finished, and it is finished There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So see His love and trust Him. Trust Him more. Serve Him more. Obey Him more. Speak of Him more. And let's, church in Abu Dhabi here, let's glorify Him more. don't you stand let's pray we love you Jesus Christ oh what a Savior you are thank you thank you thank you you knew everything you faced in Jerusalem and your love for us moved you to experience it all, and you could have stopped it at any time, and your love for us moved you to go to the very end until it was finished. We love you. I pray for anyone here who's not yet trusting you, Lord, that right now you would so show them your love, that they would turn from the emptiness of their sin and trust and receive you as savior. Lord, and treasure. And I pray that you'd strengthen all of us to see your love more, to trust you more, love you more, glorify you more. In Jesus' name, amen.